Hello, restaurant and hospitality industry friends, and welcome to another episode of While We Were Waiting, a podcast that highlights the funniest, most uplifting, and sometimes even downright crazy stories from inside the restaurant. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I'm her husband, AJ Gilbert. So we have a lot to cover in today's episode, and we have some amazing guests that I can't wait to introduce you all to. But first, AJ, let's talk about what happened in the news this week. First, I have a surprise for you, and I have some intro music I'll explain in a minute. So I promised Charlie we would include this for getting us quiet time. This is her piano playing. (laughs) So this is the intro to the segment. I think it just goes on like that. She doesn't know how to play piano. (laughs) Sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) So I had a game I thought we could play to start. Okay. And it's from your old show, your old podcast, okay. Would You Rather. Oh, God. <laughs> and these are the quarantine edition. Okay. Okay. Right on. I'm excited. <laughs> All right. So we've seen some strains in the food supply. Mm-hmm. Might run out of some foods, right? Yes. Yes. Would you rather run out of coffee or booze? Oh, God. That's hard. I think I'd rather run out of booze, honestly, because I think that I could survive on coffee. Like, I think it kind of scratches the same itch a little bit mm-hmm. in, in a weird way. And I know that I would not be a nice person during the day without coffee. Yeah. I just don't know if I could actually do it without coffee. I could function without booze. It would just suck. It would totally suck, and I've probably been drinking a little bit too often and too much since we've been in quarantine, so it would be better for my health if I didn't. Okay. So, so I would make the choice to, to salvage my health, yeah. All right. Coffee it is. Coffee it is. Okay. If we ran out of beef, chicken, pork, mm-hmm. pizza, mm-hmm. would you mm-hmm. eat octopus? No. (laughs) I think octopus is so disgusting. I don't understand everyone's infatuation with it. No, but it's a whole thing in the culinary world about who can actually make octopus good. That is not something that I want to eat at all. I like it. When I I found out they were smart, I started to feel bad about it, but I, I like it. But you eat a lot of weird stuff. Like I, like you would pick like yogurt over chocolate cake as a dessert. Like I I don't understand that at all. (laughs) Okay. This is not food related. Would you rather be quarantined with your family, Mm -hmm. your immediate family Mm -hmm. in a 3,500 square foot house in Texas or an 800 square foot house on the beach in Malibu? Oh, definitely Malibu. I actually am someone who likes to spend time with my family, even my chatty, chatty six-year-old who drives me nuts sometimes. But to be able to look out the window and see the beach, I mean, that makes quarantine feel less quarantine-y, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well done. You? You? You Oh, I have to answer these two? Definitely the beach. I eat octopus. Uh, I probably prefer it to a lot of those other things. And uh, coffee. Yeah. So we agree on everything but the octopus. Well, you know what? You should marry me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Wait, wait. We have to play the outro from Charlie. That's the the deal we made. Here we go. Okay. Okay. 
While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters. One House provides hotel and restaurant groups with highly tailored and confidential searches for all salaried front and back of house management, as well as all executive and C-suite leadership. When this madness ends and you're ready to rebuild your team, reach out to us at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. At One House, our motto has always been, we are one, and we are. So what did you do today in quarantine, Martha Madison? Well, AJ Gilbert, today in quarantine, um, I went for a really long run this morning, which was nice, even though it's cold again. It was like 48 degrees this morning. Um, And uh, I did some cleaning. I've been cleaning a lot since I've been in quarantine. Um, I do feel like the school is taking pity on us homeschool parents. So the, the workload for homeschool was really light today. Um, and I am now judging uh, the daytime Emmys right now. So I judged the lead actor category this afternoon, which took about two, two hours. So that was kind of nice. I almost felt like I was back to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, was, it wasn't a terrible quarantine day. You? Very good. Well, I'm going to talk about Sunday, which was Easter Sunday. You know, we made a little Easter for Charlie. I'm Jewish, so it's never been a big holiday, but I do understand that Charlie is somewhat Jewish. <laughs> She's so we, half Jewish. Adam Sandler can include her in his song. <laughs> yeah, the way you say Jewish changes the more longer we live in, live in Texas. Um, <laughs> so uh, we did a little Easter for her, which was nice. Uh, kind of sad again that she doesn't get to do this kind of stuff with her friends and everything, but she seemed to enjoy it. And then we went to White Rock Lake, which for those that don't know Dallas, North Texas is not the prettiest part of the country by any means, but Dallas has some really pretty parts and White Rock Lake is the prettiest and it's really nice. And we took a nice walk around the lake and there were a lot of people out riding their bikes, probably too many given Mm -hmm. the kind of health stuff, but I enjoyed it. And then we had received an email from somebody that uh, listens to the podcast and lives near the restaurant that we're building and it said that one of the windows was open to the building. So we drove over to the area where the restaurant is, which is part of town called Bishop Arts. And Sundays, it was Easter, of course, but uh, Sundays, the neighborhood is just bustling. There are people everywhere, lots of brunch restaurants, people sitting outside eating pie, police on horseback. I mean, it's a really popular weekend neighborhood. And it was so strange. I mean, we haven't left our neighborhood barely at all other than go to the grocery store and stuff. And it was so strange just to see that area deserted. And it really changed my mindset. Not that I wasn't kind of intellectually aware of it, but just to feel emotionally how dramatic this is. And I'm just talking about the business side of it. I'm not being insensitive to the kind of personal stuff. And we're all feeling that. My sense of optimism for how this will end for restaurants is being really challenged now. Mm -hmm. It's just so hard to see. There's so much that needs to be fixed. There's so much time, you know, uh, so much back rent, so much lost sales, and then so many people losing their jobs throughout the economy. It's, it's, it it seems very grim to me. So I, I was really, I spent most of Sunday afternoon just really reflecting on, wow, this is, this is just, going on and on. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think I felt a lot of that and I I am feeling a lot of that as well. 
um, especially after hearing Gavin Newsom today talking about, you know, some preliminary ideas about, you know, disposable menus and servers wearing masks and gloves and, you know, all this stuff that really takes the personal feel and hospitality out of the restaurant. Like that does not encourage me to want to go out. I'd rather just cook at home. And so, you know, I'm really, and I know that the vaccines aren't going to be ready for at least a year. And so I'm really looking to and hoping for in my, my, you know, miracle hope (laughs) that, uh, you know, that we'll get some form of miracle um, treatment, you know, that will at least keep this from being lethal. Uh, You know, that one of these um, you know, drugs that they're testing may have some kind of effect. I mean, I really see yeah. that that's kind of the the only. Like, I think that's that's what we that's what it is. It's just a hope. I mean, there's yeah. no reason to believe that will happen now. And you know, the the idea of a waiter wearing a mask or throwaway menus and all this stuff. I mean, these might have some health benefit. I I feel like restaurants to make money, so many things has to have to go perfectly well, meaning the weather has to be good. You know, the home teams can't be playing in playoff games. Um, There have to be no kind of unusual things going on. And, you know, you, you put a pandemic and people's fear of being close to each other in an environment with people eating and all these health precautions. It's just so hard to imagine that could, that could work. I, I just, I can't visualize it. And maybe it's because I haven't figured it out yet. And maybe, there are some very clever people that are going to figure out how to make this work. And I certainly hope so. So I would say that, you know, some kind of miracle therapy that allows people not to be so scared of getting sick or, you know, some very clever way to make restaurants work. But I I just don't see it otherwise. I don't see it either. But, you know, hopefully we'll get a vaccine sooner than we expect or an effective one or or some kind of treatment. Yeah. So anyway, on to happier news. Um, (laughs) I don't know if it's happy news, but uh, Yelp. (laughs) <laughs> Yelp got comeuppance this week. Well, they still are operating, but you know, first of all, we recorded our podcast, and then I think a day or two later, after we were saying that Yelp shouldn't exist, we saw that they laid off two thousand people, or they laid off one thousand and furloughed one thousand, mm-hmm. and that was certainly that's just terrible. I terrible. I don't think there's any estimate, you know, and and just for the restaurant business and for restaurants in San Francisco and the places that Yelp is headquartered, that's 2000 less people that are going to be able to go out to eat and until they find new jobs and it's right. just not good for anybody so that's there's, that's there's, not there's no upside to 2000 people losing their job but if there was an upside yeah if there was it's Yelp it could be a better Yelp. company right, yeah right 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 so uh, if 2000 people had to lose their jobs i'm glad it was from Yelp speaking of somewhat predatory companies i wanted to play you this ad okay. from Grubhub Oh, great. Restaurants are our family, the cornerstone of our communities. And our family needs help. Right now, they're facing a crisis, and they're counting on your takeout and delivery orders to help them through. Because if we don't treat restaurants like family today, they might not be around to treat us like family tomorrow. Grubhub. Together, we can help save the restaurants we love. <laughs> so we've done a lot of takeout and delivery. We At our restaurants, Luna Park in San Francisco and Luna Park, Los Angeles, we offered takeout and delivery, which was somewhat contrary for the kind of concepts. I'd worked in New York. We'd opened a restaurant there. And a lot of the restaurants in our category 
did delivery because it's so easy there because the city's so dense. And I thought this would be fun to try in San Francisco when we started was before Grubhub and Uber Eats. And it's an, it's not a great business. There's uh, The check averages are really low. It takes a long time to get the food to people. The labor costs are relatively high. But as an adjunct to a full service restaurant, there's some value to it until you pay a 30% commission to deliver it. And what Grubhub is not saying in that ad is that if you go to Grubhub and you order food to save the restaurant business, the restaurant will be paying Grubhub 30% of that check. So if you're ordering $100 worth of food, $30 is going to Grubhub. Right. But what I think most people don't understand who who don't work in the restaurant industry is that if you spent $100 at the restaurant, the restaurant would only profit between $5 and $10 on that sale. So you're basically saying to the restaurant, not only do I want to take all of your profit, I want to I want to tack on 20 more percent to that so right. that I pick up your food and take it to somewhere uh, you know where I also can't guarantee quality because I don't work for you or your brand and then I'm going to go and use that money to make a a commercial about how we're here to save the restaurant industry. It is so infuriating. So if a restaurant is up and running and they've got people in the dining room and they do some Grubhub or Uber Eats, you know, that 30% because the cooks are going to be there anyway, there's going to be some front of house labor there anyway, they have to add in about 10% per packaging, but it still makes a little bit of sense. They might make a few dollars. They're barely making anything. As soon as you don't have a dining room and everybody's cooking, and if that money is going to Grubhub because they're running national ads to ask people to do it, it is not helping the restaurant. The moral of this story is if you want to order takeout from your restaurant to help it survive, and God, I hope you do, call the restaurant directly, swing by. Everybody's doing you know, no contact pickups now. That is the best way for your dollars to be spent in a way that actually benefits the restaurant. And honestly, it's safer this way. You don't have a middleman who has no food and beverage handling experience putting their hands all over your food. Mark Cuban started a website to help track the federal government's distribution of these emergency loans, the PPP loan and the emergency disaster loans. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you go to his website, covidloantracker.com, and you just fill out a few questions, and then they're keeping track of who gets funding and when to present some accountability to the government. So I just opened it. of people who have gone to this website and reported that they've applied for loans Mm -hmm. have received loans. I saw that. It was like 3,000 people had entered their information and only 2.5% had received the money. Yeah. So this is actually 2.5% of the payroll protection loans, Mm -hmm. 0.5% of the emergency disaster loans. So Mm -hmm. 0.5%. That's crazy. Yeah, I'll probably cut this out because it makes me sound like a raving uh, uh, libertarian. But the law that Congress passed said that the emergency disaster loans had to go out within three days of the application. 0.5% of the people who have applied have received it. What would the government do if you failed to pay them money on time? Well, we know what they do when you fail to pay a parking ticket on time. So today's episode is about the unexpected guest. And if you've worked in restaurants for any length of time, you've definitely had a couple of those experiences where someone was in the restaurant when they shouldn't be, (laughs) 
or how they shouldn't be. Um, and so we're going to share some of those stories today with our guests. We have Richie Hershenfeld and Michael Trink on. They are partners and owners of Prohibition in New York City, as well as Lucky's Famous Burgers. And we are so excited to have them on the show. So welcome on, Richie and Michael. So you guys have been in the New York restaurant bar industry for a long time, and you've worked at some really interesting places. Well, I met uh, Richie uh, in 1989. He was the opening bartender, and I was the opening day manager. Worked at a restaurant called Tribeca Grill, which was owned by Sean Penn, Bill Murray, Christopher Walken, uh, Barbara Streisand. This was one of the first celebrity spots in New York. Robert De Niro was the headliner, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, they had Miramax upstairs. Every single day, there was a parade of celebrities coming in. And, uh, you know, it was one of the coolest restaurants. It was the New York equivalent to a restaurant in San Francisco called Stars uh, back <laughs> in the day. And so, uh, I, I worked with Jeremiah Tower. Oh, so, so you got it. So this was the, the post-Stars New York City you know, sort of uh, connection. And, you know, we, we mirrored that um, in, in the East Coast. So it was an awesome experience. Richie and I, the first event we worked was Liza Minnelli's 10th wedding anniversary. I think <laughs> quickly followed by Nelson Mandela's, you know, uh. you know get out of uh, prison, um, wow. you know, event, which was one of the coolest events uh, to this day that I've ever worked. And yeah. uh, it was just wow. it, was a, it was a really unique experience. Richie had a lot more experiences as a bartender dealing and seeing uh, night to night activities. Um, right. I was stuck in the walk in downstairs organizing vegetables where you belonged. Yes. So, so how did you guys make your way from there to you own and operate Prohibition in the Upper West Side and Lucky's Famous Burgers? Where is Lucky's Famous Burgers located? We have two locations presently in New York City. Uh, one is on 52nd Street in Hell's Kitchen, and one is in Chelsea on 23rd Street. What's the concept like? How does it work? Lucky's is sort of like a, a five guys. It's fast, casual. I like to say it's good food fast. And mm-hmm. you know, we have uh, yeah, great burgers and fries and uh, salads and shakes. And you know, now, now you have to have impossible burgers and beyond burgers to satisfy all, all types. But they're about- Just bought uh, some today. I, yeah, it's 500 to 1,000 square foot footprints. Um, and, you know, they do pretty well for, you know, a business in New York. And 50% of the business is delivery and 50% of the business is in store. And and we mm-hmm. cater to a lot of clubs and a lot of, you know, uh, late night drinking. Um, you know, uh, it's basically someone's refuge at the end of the night. So Prohibition is a, a bar with live music and, and food as well. Exactly. Um, we opened up in 96, live music seven nights a week, full menu, dinner menu. Um, you know, we originally started off just with music and really light food, but then we decided we wanted to keep people there. We didn't want it to come, go someplace else for dinner and come to us or come to us and then go someplace else for dinner. We figured let's try and build it where we can keep them all night long. Yeah, I've always thought it's an interesting challenge that bars have because everybody can make the same drinks. Right. Yeah. So if, if you go to one bar, it's really the people and the atmosphere. But as soon as you bring in food and you kind of create your own menu, your own identity, you have a whole other layer to attract people. Richie, what, what made you decide to open a, a live music venue? We were looking around, I was looking around with some guys I used, 
excuse me, some guys I used to bartend for, we decided to partner up. And this space became available. It was formerly a bar called Lucy's, which was a very famous bar that I used to hang out at on, on Columbus Avenue. On the Upper um, West Side, right? On the Upper West Side. And Lucy's went out of business after many, many years, and the space was available. Two of the guys that we were going to open this new bar with actually managed Lucy's. So they had they had they got the first wind of the place being you know available. The, the live music was kind of an afterthought. You know, wasn't it, we we did it from day one that we opened, but when we when we started thinking about a concept for a bar that wasn't part of the concept. But right. again, we just wanted to think what can we do different. Like you said, everybody can make the same drinks. Um, what can we add that can make people want to stay there and, and make people come to us that they can't to get something they can't get someplace else. And nobody else was really doing live music up there at the time. It wasn't our big focus. We had bands. It was supposed to be a place where the live music was kind of secondary. You go hang out, there'd be music playing in the background. And then it evolved into that being our main focus. I worked up on the Upper West Side around the time that Prohibition was becoming quite the... Uh the name of the place to go in the Upper West Side. And we would oh, always decide, are we going to go to Prohibition? Are we going to go to Peter's? Are we going to go to Bourbon Oh, Peter's, sure. Of course. <laughs> and we went to Prohibition all the time. And I do remember that the music became more and more of the experience as, as time went by. It's funny. I remember Peter's as well. I mean, God, all I can think about now is how heavy the cigarette smoke was oh, when you went into that place. That place smelled so bad, but it really was the hub of every- It was um, great. Every service industry employee That's right. <laughs> on the Upper West Side. <laughs> and the news people from, from ABC News. Oh, yeah. Know, right? and, and the soap people. There was That's uh, right. ABC Studios right there. That's right. And for our listeners that don't know, you're married to a soap star also. Exactly. <laughs> Alicia Minshew, who uh, was on All My Children forever. For 10 years, yeah. She played Susan Lucci's daughter, yeah. When we, when, she, when we first started dating, we actually met at Prohibition after the uh, Emmys. They all came back to Prohibition after the after the Emmys for a little after party, and I got introduced to her, and you know we hit it off um, immediately. Of course, and, she's, <laughs> and, and you know, and our big thing back then was you know on the weekends we had most of our bands would play classic rock. You know, I'm older than she is, mm-hmm. and I thought classic rock was so cool, and that's what everybody wanted to hear. And she's like, "You need you need '80s music. Yeah. <laughs> people, people love people love the '80s." Right, and this was this was like two thousand. This was two thousand and four. She's right, yeah. <laughs> and she was so right. We went out and got this band called the Guilfords that actually packs our place whenever they play. That's and that awesome. was an eighties band. That ever since then, on the weekends, we would have one night on a Saturday night would usually be an eighties slash nineties band. So we got fun. away from the classic rock. I went to the Emmys in New York with you once, Martha, and I think it was the yeah. last year they did it in New York. It and I think it was two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Those are the days. We were so close. How do you guys divide yourselves? What, who, who's responsible for what and how, how do you organize yourselves within your restaurants? Well, Richie is fortunate enough to not really be in the day-to-day operation of, of running these businesses. Uh, he's sort of uh, splits his time working for a realty company. You know, that's, that's his livelihood. I, I, he's got a wife and child he's got to deal with. Um, <laughs> so I, my child is prohibition and luckies. I, I'm basically responsible for overseeing the businesses on the day-to-day operation. And Richie is sort of my uh, other set of eyes. And we discuss things and we bounce everything off each other. That's fantastic. I, I've had a number of different 
partners in business. You know, the good partnership is so much exponentially makes you so much stronger. Well, the, the great thing about our, our collaboration has always been there's never been an ego involved. So nobody had to be right. You know, mm-hmm. I could have been th- I could have been thinking one way and figured this this 100 is the way we should do something, and then Mike would come back and say, and I'd be so set in that thinking that there's no way that I'm wrong, and he would come back with with an idea or or tell me why a better a way to do it even better, and I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense, and vice versa. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't have to be right. Yeah, it's just a different, different things from different vantage points are really important. You know, just you know, obviously as as a couple with the two of you, I mean. You know, one sees one one way, one sees the other, and obviously respect each other. And I think that's really important in a successful, you know, any business or any relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I think that's worked well. And we've been partners for 24 years at Prohibition. In fact, wow. no, uh, Rich, uh, happy anniversary. Yesterday was our 24th anniversary. Oh, anniversary. Yeah. Happy that anniversary. Party. That was a great party, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was fantastic. We're still hungover. <laughs> so, Michael, I, I want to um, ask you, since you've been really the hands-on operator of these three locations recently, you've been the one, I'm sure, that's been having to manage a lot of the FaceTime with your employees and the fallout of all of this coronavirus. Um, tell me a little bit about what your experience has been like. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's drastically different from business to business. Little did I know five weeks ago that I was an essential business for Lucky's where I needed oh, to be open. open. So they allowed me to stay open and, and I kept it going. And, and I, you know, I figured, okay, I won't pay rent. I won't pay utilities. You know, I'm getting all this potential forgiveness or at least I have good excuses not to pay bills. Mm-hmm. And so I kept it going for my staff because that staff, that, that was a different population that I felt like I was obligated to take care of. And they couldn't get a, the delivery people who weren't making as much money, who I was afraid they weren't going to get that much on unemployment. They had families of you know four or five people that they needed to take care of. So I kept it open as long as I could. And I finally just closed one of them down last Wednesday and the other one last Friday. And, and it was um, really heartbreaking for me. But I realized between the, the fear of getting sick as well as them yeah. knowing people who got sick, it wasn't worth it. And I, I just had sleepless nights. And to me, it's just, it's best that everyone is home safe and we get through this together. And then we open when the time is right. Prohibition is more of a restaurant and bar. And when we got the official mandate uh, by government saying you have to be closed by the 15th of March, it made it really easy for me just to say, guys, unfortunately, we have to close. Everyone should go on unemployment on Monday. We gave everybody the link. And that particular Monday, which I believe was the 16th of March, everybody signed up and everyone's been getting, I believe, you know, their compensation uh, or their, their benefits within a week. They're kicking in the $600 mm-hmm. on top of that. Yeah. And in the New York area, they went from 26 to 39 weeks as of the other day. Oh, wow. And, and they might push that back in December, even longer. My partner was Richie, myself, and my other partner, we had a little text exchange and says, well, this is good for the employees. I said, but what's good for the employer? You know, the employees are getting paid every week. The employers are worried about, you know, when are you going to reopen? Are we going to get, you know, are we going to be able to negotiate our rents? Are we going to get some, you know, forgiveness and loans? Is the loan going to go through? 
have you guys applied for any of the federal PPE or the, the I, I disaster relief? I applied for it all. PPP, the 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 uh, the ten thousand dollar, you know, I don't know, it's the continuity one, uh, as well as the small business loan. And where did what's where are you with that? If you had any feedback, I obviously I've had, I've had zero. You know, it's for all three businesses. I I basically you know applied for everything, and we'll see right. what comes through. There are, you know, issues with the PPP, which make it very tricky if you do get it. You know, after 24 years of not having any debt, the last thing I want is all of a sudden to have seventy five or $100,000 in debt. Exactly. I think and, this is a big problem. You know, we're going to have 50% of business. And I know I've heard you say, Martha, a couple of times in these mm-hmm. calls that 50% just won't do it. I don't yeah. care if I cut my rent in half. It's not going to make a difference. Um you know, that's, uh, I mean, I'm not, we're not really doing this for the fun of it anymore. In 1996, when we first started out, the margins for owning a restaurant in New York, you were hoping that you'd make around 20%. Right. That was, that was the, that was the neighborhood of the profitability back then. Not anymore. Then, <laughs> then it was, at 2005, it was, you know, 12 to 15%. Well, I'm going to tell you in 2020, Mm-hmm. If I make four to seven percent, I'm happy. What are you expecting? What do you think is going to come next for the for the businesses? It's April thirteenth, and we've only been going through this for about three and a half weeks, right? And so another four to six weeks, which is probably inevitable, as the you know timeline that's probably going to be the shelter in place, social distancing component. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is just going to be really embedded in the New Yorker's um, DNA. It, mm-hmm. It's going to become the new normal. My wife, she's a therapist and she also works for the city um, processing people who are getting released from Rikers Island. Wow. And wow. This, these were jobs that she would do in person. And now she's very comfortable after a week of hiccups of working from home. And by the way, loving it. She doesn't have to get on a bus or a train. She doesn't have to go to a Starbucks with those 100 people. And that's why I do not think people are antsy to like, let's just open it up and flip a switch and everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be. And especially in four to six or eight weeks from now, it's even going to be more embedded. And I said it to Richie the other day, his wife, my wife, they're not going to any public places. They're not going to prohibition again until there's a vaccine. Mm-hmm. How many bars are going to have a cocktail called the vaccine in 18 months? Right. COVID. <laughs> Here's your funny. COVID for you. <laughs> it's, it's so true. <laughs> Mike, write that down. Okay. So we are doing this episode about the unexpected guest, and all four of us have some pretty fun stories to share. So we'll kick it off with AJ. So my story, we go back to Luna Park, San Francisco. I believe it was the first year we were open, which was 2000. The restaurant is on Valencia Street in San Francisco, which is quite a pedestrian street. And there's a lot of street life, a lot of people out on the streets. And then there were bars and restaurants, so people walking back and forth, particularly on Friday and Saturday night. And my partner at the time, Joe, liked to invite street merchants in. So there were people that would sell flowers and there were a lot of street musicians. And so there were always people kind of coming in and we would turn down the music and let them play flamingo guitar 
or there was a mariachi band or people would come in and do tarot card readings. First, I was uncomfortable with the idea. And as soon as we started doing it, it was just great. It's a busy, busy Friday or Saturday night. The front doors open, it was warm weather, and in rolls a unicycle. And the rider is wearing a suit that looks like it's made from kaleidoscopes. It's like a black and white suit with circles all over it. And he has a top hat that matches. Uh, he was wearing glasses that kind of were like blinking, that were illuminated glasses. And he rode his unicycle right down the middle of the restaurant, right past the bar and dismounted the unicycle. So everybody in the dining room is turning because obviously it's not often that somebody rides a unicycle into a restaurant and then his clothing and his appearance, it's all very striking. He reaches in his pocket and takes out a giant roll of cash. And he just starts walking around the restaurant, handing out $2 bills to everybody who reached their hand up. So he walked past the kitchen and gave $2 bills to all the cooks through the dining room and handed out $2 bills to the people at their tables, past the bar, handed out $2 bills to everybody. And you look around the dining room and everybody has like a $2 bill in their hand. They were brand new, crisp $2 bills. He goes back to his unicycle. He boards it and pedals to the front door. So the music's playing. It was probably the soundtrack to High Fidelity. We always want to play the music a little bit too loud. So the measure of if the music was loud enough was if you could really make out the lyrics. We didn't want it to be a nightclub, but we wanted the music to be part of the environment. The moment the unicyclist reaches the door, the music starts to fade out. It was just this coincidental moment that the song was ending. He turns around, so he's facing the dining room like he's on stage. He takes his hat off his head, tips it forward, bows, and said, I wish you all a good night. And he got back on his unicycle and pedaled down the street. Everybody applauded. Everybody had $2 bills in their hands, and everybody looked at each other, and then the house music came back up, and everybody went back to dinner. In the morning you come, the ladies alone, took it off it on. All right, Richie, let's hear your story. It was Oscar night 10 years ago. It was not a busy night for us. I'm standing by the front of the bar, which is near the front door, and door opens up. This guy walks in, socks. That's all he's wearing, socks. And just makes a beeline down the front of our restaurant, past about six tables to table 10, with, like he's meeting somebody, stark naked, Socks, sense of purpose, like knew where he was going. That's my table. And I reached out and just grabbed his wrist. I thank God to this day that he didn't resist. I, didn't, I really didn't want to get into a wrestling match. And I pulled him back out and he just went along. He just walked up Columbus Avenue as if, you know, I'll go, I'll go someplace else. <laughs> no problem. Okay, Michael, you're up. In 2004, I was in the planning stage of opening up a restaurant called the Capitol Grill. Capitol Grill was owned by Red Lobster Olive Garden, which as of that day was a publicly traded company. My team had rung the bell at the New York Stock Exchange that morning, and we had our grand opening party that night. Yeah. 
It was a very nervous day for me. I had all my bosses from all over the country there. There was 45 Capitol Grills at that point, and this was going to be their flagship location in the Chrysler Building. When the Capitol Grill does a new opening, they spend about $250,000 to plan for the opening. It takes about three weeks, and they bring a whole team in, and it's really done the right way. Everything is going perfectly. We're doing cocktails, hors d'oeuvres. Everyone is basically toasting to the tremendous success that this restaurant's about to become. And there's an area called the Trilons, which is a glass enclosed area in the main dining room. All of a sudden, over my earpiece, my manager says, Mike, you gotta come up here immediately. I need you outside. I said, up front or outside? Outside. I said, outside where? In the fountain. I said, what do you mean in the fountain? It's just come outside. And all of a sudden I see a homeless man completely naked washing in the fountain as well as taking the coins that are people are have thrown in there to make their wishes and people in the dining room they're all from Atlanta they're from the Midwest are all staring at this person as if what is this place You know, this was a, their first New York City steakhouse. I was just like, sir, you can't do this. What do you mean I can't do this? I said, sir, you can't do this. This is public property. And it was public property. I mean, it's just a fountain. It's it's their quote unquote park. I didn't know how to answer any of my boss's questions later that night. He did it three times over the next week. And then I never saw him again. Yeah, that was a uh, very uncomfortable evening where as much as you plan for everything, as much money as you put into putting on this great show, there's always something that you can't control. So Martha, tell me about your unexpected guest. Back in New York City, when I was working for Jimmy's Downtown on the Upper East Side, the staff at Jimmy's Downtown was invited to Jimmy's Uptown, which was actually in Harlem, to help with this huge dinner they were throwing for the Democratic National Committee. So we knew it was going to be a very important event and that there would likely be VIPs there. We were all really excited and not knowing what to expect. It was a beautiful dining room, white tablecloths, polished everything. I was working behind the bar, you know, opening hundreds of bottles of wine and champagne and getting ready for this huge event. And the event is going. And of course, we're seeing TV stars and movie stars and local politicians and sports stars. And, and this was not uncommon for the crowds that would come into Jimmy's uptown or downtown. Then all of a sudden, about an hour into it, I start to see these really good-looking men in sharp suits, you know, around at the doors. And I start to notice that maybe this is Secret Service. So lo and behold, the next thing I knew, in walks Bill Clinton. We were all a little nerve-wracked. Um, I was... I was conflicted at the time because I was still really pissed off at him for cheating on his wife. But he was very polite. He walked all the way down the bar. He shook everybody's hand. And right behind him was one of his aides who 
as he passed us after shaking our hands, the aide was passing out these tickets. And so I got handed this ticket and it was a ticket to the after party at the Apollo, which was just a block away. It went to the entire staff. We all went together, men and women. So we all finish up, we, we clean up everything as fast as we can, kind of like uh, feeling like Cinderella at this moment, and, and hustling over to the Apollo, even still surprised that they let us in at all. We take our seats, like second row in the mezzanine, so we feel like we're right there, like right on top of all the action. And it's this huge star-studded show. I think Chris Tucker was uh, hosting it. Tony Bennett was singing with Katie Lang. And all these different performers were, were there to help raise money for the DNC. Then they came out and they said, we have one more act. Um, it's our special surprise guest. And they open up the curtains and there all by himself stood in the middle of the stage, Michael Jackson. a 22-year-old bartender, and I'm sitting at the DNC after party at the Apollo with Michael Jackson, and he starts singing Man in the Mirror, and I open my LG flip phone, and I called my mother, and she's like, what, what? And I said, just listen, it's Michael Jackson, and I held up my phone while we all sat there with our jaws all the way to the floor. And I just could not believe that this was my life. Well, thank you for tuning in to While We Were Waiting, and thank you to our guests, Richie Hershenfeld and Michael Trink, owners of Prohibition and Lucky's Famous Burgers in New York City. You can find their websites at prohibition.net and luckysfamousburgers.com. You can find us at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com and also on Instagram and Facebook at Waiting Podcast and Twitter at Waiting underscore Podcast. Also, if you're like me and need some visuals to connect to the stories we told today, we have some of those up on our website under episode pictures. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. Until we meet again, stay home, stay healthy, stay sane. Happy quarantine, everyone. I rose above the noise and confusion just to get a glimpse beyond.